0: Hello and welcome to Trees Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we're talking about Fedora and probably a bit about Sunset Boulevard as well. Uh, Sunset Boulevard you'll definitely have heard of. Fedora you might not have. It's another Billy Wilder film from 1978, so 28 years after Sunset Boulevard. And in some ways it covers kind of similar territory and similar, similar themes. It's another one that's been put on movie as a perfect failure. And to be honest with you, I couldn't really see why. Well, because it
1: was a disaster at the box office.
0: Well, yeah, okay. But (laughs) um, I suppose I couldn't see why it was a perfect failure in the same way that Southland Tales was, that we saw recently.
1: It's an art film because, you know, it's a film that you can imagine every cinephile uh, loving. Uh, But i also understand why it was a failure at the box office uh and i do think that once you get cinephiles obsessing you know through a tourist roots uh and you know kind of picking up on my new of a director's style or something you know you sometimes lose the forest for the trees um and i th- i can understand why this was not successful there are a lot of things wrong with it uh, Primarily, uh, Marth Keller's central performance. I mean, you know, she she looks the part, uh, but I think she's quite inadequate to acting the part. And it's a central problem with the film.
0: It doesn't help that her dialogue is dubbed. Yes. Uh, her and the um, the other actress, uh, Hildegard Knef, yes. both of their voices were dubbed by the same actor, mm. actress, um, Inga Bunch. And, you know, because the characters are sort of supposed to be the same, or that there's there's certainly a kind of identity confluence between them, Um, that kind of makes thematic sense. But, you know, it comes out of Wilder sort of realising that they were unintelligible to listen to. And it does does kind of, um, there's something off about it. You know, it wasn't until I finished watching the movie and looked it up that I realised that's what it was. But there was something off about that.
1: It was quite common in these transnational productions from the 70s that had all-star casts from different countries uh, to, to always have something dubbed in it, right? So my understanding is that uh, Martha Keller dubbed the French version, you know, and then in the German uh, version, Hildegard Neff spoke her part, but other people were dubbed, right? So kind of that's not uncommon in countries where most of the mainstream releases were dubbed, in, in those periods, right? So there are probably like several versions with different voices. Yeah, so orally, the films, these transnational films, are always a dilemma. There's always something that sounds slightly tinny about it, yeah? I kind of, I was watching the, the conversation, Visconti's The Conversation the other day, and it's, it's the same thing. You know, there's an English version where you hear Burt Lancaster's voice. There's an Italian version, you know, where you hear everybody else's voice. Right, Silvana Mangano and Claudia Cardinale and so on. So that is just a feature of this transnational production of the period. But I'm thinking even further than that. This is a film, which I loved, by the way, uh, but in which you can imagine, you have somebody else in your head that can do the parts better. Every part. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, for example, the Marth Keller part, I thought, you know, wouldn't Faith Dunaway have been great yeah, kind of playing the daughter, right? Wouldn't Marlena Dietrich have been great playing the Countess, right? Wouldn't Warren Beatty have been a million times better than Michael York playing Michael York, <laughs> Like, yeah, well, I quite liked Michael York. To I, be fair, I think he's—I mean, you know—he's—he's uh,
0: a, he's a blank and he's a very pretty blank. But I kind of felt like that was—that was the almost the point of his character, I suppose. He represents youth and something different and what the girl wants. And I, and I suppose I also just associate him so heavily with the role of Basil Exposition in Austin Powers that yeah. every time they said Michael York, it just made me laugh. I know that's not the intention, but I found it funny. And then he's very self-effacing when he gets to that point where it's his it's, it's only real sort of bit on screen where he talks about wetting himself with excitement when he saw this actress uh, when he was six years old. And I thought, you know, for someone who's playing himself especially, that's... Um, that's I quite like that. I thought it's quite bold, you know. Well...
1: I, I didn't I thought he spoke everything like an automaton he was like he was unbelievable even as himself though You know, he is he is very pretty but actually, you know, he lacks he lacks excitement You can't imagine anyone committing suicide over Michael York <laughs> so, well, true, yeah. so 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 I think that's essential failure uh, in the film and actually it extends to William Holden Right. Who I think is is wonderful in the part, but I do think he's too old. Right. I mean, Mm. you know, well, uh, yes, he is. He's supposed to be like 20 years younger than she. Right. So, you know, when you see him as an assistant director in 1927, he's meant to be 23, 25. Right. Mm. You know, um, yeah. So so I and also I think the film would have been more dynamic. Yeah. With, you know, kind of uh, um, uh, a younger actor in that part he is to me a bit too old yeah
0: do you think he's been cast because it reflects his role in Sunset Boulevard because there's so much in this film that seems so deliberate about that do you think that's one of those things
1: no my understanding is that you know he was cast because even in this period he was quite a big name Uh, and uh, Billy Wilder couldn't get somebody else and I think you know his age was an issue in the casting And it was something that was considered and overridden but You know he he looks his age uh, And I think he's a bit too old and I think the film would have been more glamorous better with somebody younger with a William Holden in the 50s yeah, the way he looked and moved and so on in the 1950s rather than, you know, here, which is almost like it's 1978. It's, you know, uh, so so I think all of those are real problems with the
0: film for me. I do know what you mean. Um, with his age, though... I suppose I didn't really think about it too heavily, but I didn't have a problem with it. It seemed it seemed kind of it seemed to make sense to me. And there's a tone to the film, which is all about aging and looking back and the comparison between the way things were and the way we are now. And his age spoke to that to me, because there's that moment towards the end where, you know, he's been told this whole story about the awful thing that these people have done. And then he he reconnects that memory for, that you've seen in flashback previously of when he slept with uh, Fedora when she was you know a, a huge star, um, and they reconnect over over a memory of it. And he says, "Oh, you do remember?" And you know the fact that they are so old and and life has gone so far and so on. It all that all seemed to kind of connect for me. Well, I rather it, like that. It
1: didn't for me. Um, and actually, it's kind of unimaginable. You know, like. Uh, What you needed was the William Holden of Sunset Boulevard, the way he looked then, you know, because in a way he's playing a similar kind of part. He's somebody who's young and hustling, or, you know, who's hustling to get a film made, right? And, you know, he's on his uppers, he can't get help. You know, somebody in his 60s, I also think you can't quite imagine it that way, really. You know, not also if he's like, you know, produced all these films and had some hits and been had nominations. You just can't imagine him on the make like that uh, at that age. So,
0: you know, um, I don't know. I I I kind of bought it. Well, I didn't kind of buy it. I did buy it. You know, he's desperate at this point. He's had some failures. He wants to get he wants to get back. He sees a way back. Fedora is desperate in in different ways, and they they have they share a similarity. they're they're both um, desperate people
1: I mean he's such a good actor and he's very good in this William Holden so I can see why it kind of works I'm just saying you know kind of it doesn't really and I think if he'd had you know a Robert Redford or a Jack Nicholson playing that part in that time you know the film would have been better it would have been more dynamic it would have been more successful I think the casting in this film is a big problem
0: yeah yeah, well, I mean, it certainly appears to be the case that, that um, they had kind of trouble getting money for the film and getting made and so on and so forth, so I'm sure all um, kind of connects. Mm. Um, the big problem for me in the film was the structure. It's so interesting for such a long time, although it does start off with a very cheap storytelling trick. Again, this is something that Sunset Boulevard does as well, two weeks earlier. You know, so we start off with the death of this woman, this star we're told in voiceover, and then two weeks earlier, what happened and how did it lead to this? Mm. Um and I, I always find that such a cheap storytelling. I think I think you never find it, you know, in a, in a really good film. It's always something that kind of betrays a lack of faith in your own story. You know, we can't we, we don't trust our story to, to maintain interest. We have to promise something that's going to happen. No, I don't
1: buy that. I think that's a very legitimate kind of storytelling device, and in fact, you see it everywhere. You know, and you see it in like lots of film noir, um, and I think I think you know, kind of Sunset Boulevard itself proves what you're saying I hear it's a really
0: great film that has that device I disagree because I don't like it in Sunset Boulevard but maybe we'll get on to that I really didn't like the structure of Sunset Boulevard um, but in Fedora then uh, once you've got past that and, you, and uh, the story kind of starts developing and you see what amounts to I suppose an extended flashback of um, the character, of William Holden's time in Corfu looking for Fedora and finding out there seems to be something very weird going on with this family that surrounds her and she's not being let out and so on and so forth. Then her funeral happens, and so you kind of catch up with the start of the film, and the whole second half of the film is just exposition. It's exposition that's dramatised through uh, flashback and cutaway, but ultimately it's just the family... Telling the story of what happened to William Holden. And I just don't really buy it. The only thing that I buy ultimately, the only reason I believed ultimately that they were going through telling him the story is because she remembers him. She remembers him and she likes him, and that's why she would bother to go through explaining everything. But actually I just I didn't like the storytelling. I didn't like how every now and again you go back to the Contessa then what happened next then what happened next then what happened next you know i, I had a real problem with with that structure well, i think I, it's I, must say, I, I didn't
1: um i liked all of that though you know maybe i am also myself reading it through the cinephile lens you know because i found it riveting every time they said something i imagined like dietrich or garbo primarily dietrich um and of course you're thinking about celebrity and glamour and you know, kind of what a movie star is, and images and mirrors and so on. So you know, and I thought a kind of all of those things kind of really cohered in, kind of like really interesting ways, right? And you know, kind of you know questions of identity, the erasure of the daughter's identity, and how little that matters in relation to image and things like that. I found that fascinating.
0: Yeah, there are things around it that I find fascinating. There are things thematically that I find really fascinating. I just didn't like the way that it was being being delivered, basically. Um, something that I, that I thought about both films is they seem to both have... Um, they obviously have a kind of low opinion of Hollywood in some respects and, and sort of youth culture in some respects and the way that stars are treated or kind of star psychology maybe. But it also occurred to me that they both seem to have quite a low opinion of women.
1: Ah, that's interesting.
0: I didn't think it was a coincidence that the kind of central characters in these films who... who uh, they go mad in, in different ways. One of them goes madder than the other. It didn't seem to me to be a coincidence that they're both women. It seemed to me to be... There seemed to be an association between being a woman and beauty and the fear of loss of beauty and stardom and ego. The films would play differently if it were a man in that central role, I think.
1: Well, it definitely would play different if it was a man in the central role. And I'm interested in what you're saying. I mean, I don't think it's the first time that uh, Wilder has been accused of misogyny. Um, But you know, in opposition to Fedora, you have the other Fedora, yeah, you have her mother, right? Which is, I think it's really based on Dietrich, that kind of sense of self-discipline and will and single-mindedness and so on. Um, and actually her relationship with her daughter, Maria Riva, her daughter wrote a wonderful book, you know, on her, her mother that has many of these dynamics that you see uh, in this film. And, you know, those are all kind of um, very powerful women. So actually, even uh, the Gloria Swanson, Norma Desmond character in Sunset Boulevard, you know, on the one hand, she's kind of going nuts and obsesses with her image and her stardom. On the other hand, she's a really strong, powerful, willful, yeah, like kind of... Mm. You know, she's she's not like a blushing wallflower, right? Or a weak
0: person. That's very true. Yeah. So um, she expresses her madness in a very strong, independent way. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: so um, yeah, I love this film because also, I mean, it's very interesting because so, for example, the film begins. And you could really see how Wilder is thinking visually, right? You know, this romantic idea, a train is coming, a woman throws herself on the train. It's kind of, you know, it's such a poetic, almost gothic kind of idea, right? But then I also thought it isn't filmed romantically and gothically. I thought that was, you know, so, so there's something for me about the visuals which are sometimes very beautiful, you know, and sometimes really succeed, those shots of Corfu and so on. But actually kind of, there are other elements which I think could have been visualized more excitingly, more dynamically. The moment in the train is one of them. The moment where they're actually filming that ball sequence uh, is another, Hmm. yeah? It kind of, it somehow lacked sweep and excitement and delirium. Yeah, what you would expect Fedora to be feeling at that moment.
0: It's funny actually, because in that scene, you're shown that the camera that is filming this scene, the camera within the scene, is sitting on a crane and it's doing this sweep down through the players. But but the, the camera you're watching it from is just doing a, a track yes. on the ground, and it's so you're you're looking at a shot that you could be seeing that yes. <laughs> you're not. You yes. know.
1: Yes. Yeah. So I do think the film is a failure, uh, but I loved it. Yeah, in spite of
0: all of it. A, a failure is an interesting kind of... It's it's an interesting term. I think we have to kind of define it because, as you say, if it made absolutely no money and it kind of dribbled out and, and was criticised and so on, then it is a failure of a sort. But if we liked it and found interesting things in it, you know, there are things that I think are deeply flawed. I don't like the way it's structured, mm. that kind of thing. But I, I liked it basically all the way through, right? Yes. I wasn't bored for a second. Maybe... I think one of the lessons also that I learned tonight, again something that I learned with Sunset Boulevard, and it's a lesson that I love and I keep returning to and I keep forgetting and I keep relearning, is the power and value of low expectations. Because when a film is presented to you as a perfect failure, your expectations could not be lower. Mm. And so to find out that the film is kind of pretty good in some ways, you go, well, wonderful. Whereas when you're told a film is one of the greatest ever, mm. as is the case with Sunset Boulevard... I ended up looking at what I felt were problems and flaws and things I didn't like. Mm. Um, Some sure, of which would fade in second and third and fourth viewings, uh, but my initial response to Sunset Boulevard was not all that positive, I must be honest with uh, you.
1: Well, I never get tired of watching it, you know, and there are shots in the in that film that are really indelible and that actually I don't think there's anything like it in Fedora. Yeah, so you know, Gloria Swanson. Oh, yeah, I think that's true. Uh, yeah. Coming down the stairs, you know, uh, yeah, things like that, that are just like fantastic, kind of visually, them- thematically, dramatically, right? And it combines all of those things. I think this film is a bit flat visually. Uh, yeah. So, you know, and, and, and that would be like my main criticism. So the casting and the kind of relative flatness
0: yeah uh uh visual flatness are to me flaws I did find it got creepy for me which I think it's meant to yes. and worked for me really worked for me so when you get into this mansion where there's all these weird cast of characters and clearly something's going on and you don't know at this point sort of you might have your theories but you don't know who fedora is exactly but it turns out you won't know and and what the relationships with these characters are um I got a sense, and I'm not joking, of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, really? Like, there's a, I, I can't remember if it's the original film, but certainly in the remake, there was a, there's a, a very weird kind of, kind of uh, deep South American hick, creepy family, hmm. and this had a feeling of that for me, of like creepiness and secrets and a prison, and are oh, you going to get out? And someone's going to die horribly. I started think. and then there's that scene with, um, well, you weren't wrong. No, no. (laughs) The family clears out and he goes in, he goes to her room uh, and he sees the the, the straps on her bed and you think, God, something's happened. And then he sees that corner of of the wallpaper that's just peeling away and you see a snatch of a photo of Michael York's face. He pulls it down and it's this terrifying, mad shrine to Michael York. Yeah. It was so scary. I I got super scared by that. What the hell is going on in this? It descended into madness at that point.
1: Yes, it's kind of... I mean, that's, I think, where the gothic dimension comes in. You know, these mansions with secrets. Yeah, with Mm. mother-daughter relationships, with sexual deviancy, right? Because, actually, I think another thing, you know, when the daughter says, I want to tell everyone my mother is gay, you think... My God, you know, that could have been filmed in such a powerful way. And actually, it's just flat. Right. And I hated the little girl actress. (laughs) Oh, yeah. She was absolutely hideous. So actually, I think there are real questions about this. So I think it's a film of like wonderful ideas and really kind of quite potent imagery. Yeah. But that remains potent at a conceptual level rather than in an audiovisual way. Yeah, yeah I, yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, when they bring down that curtain with Michael York's face, it's almost like the camera's static, right? Mm. Yeah, I mean, you could have expected to move in, to have a montage of the faces, to do something <laughs> with that idea that
0: is not just a curtain yeah. falling down, right? I think I might have actually wet my pants though if they'd done that. <laughs> it was so scary. <laughs> and there's something so scary about it being Michael York. He's such an innocent, beautiful, you know, unassuming figure.
1: Well, actually, this is again, I think, a fault with casting because, of course, <laughs> you know, in the mid-70s, Michael York was a name, you know, because of the Three Musketeer films and because of Cabaret and so on, you know, but he's just, and, and you know, and he, I mean, I remember uh, finding him very attractive in Cabaret, I had a real crush on him, right, you know, that kind of look that he has, but of course you know, he's he's just not good enough. He's, he, he lacks dynamism and, pre, you know. So mm. I, I think that, that casting is also a kind of failure. And I think it really speaks to who they could get rather than who's ideal in the part. And I think that really goes all along the cast, which, of course, it's a normal problem with films, right? Like, you know, filmmakers yeah, yeah. often don't get their ideal cast. But I think... You know, Billy Wilder is
0: someone who almost always did, right? Well, I mean, when you compare the casting real people in this and in Sunset Boulevard, in Sunset Boulevard he's got Buster Keaton and Cecil B. DeMille. Yes.
1: Well, and Gloria Swanson and William Holden. And... You know. No, no, but I mean
0: casting people as themselves oh, yeah, yeah, you know, specifically, yeah. like comparing Michael York to those. Well, yeah, no, exactly. but I mean, these, I mean it's on
1: a you know, film. there is also Henry Fonda in this, right? I mean, that's not kind of oh yes, that's true, chopped liver. But even the way that he's filmed <laughs> in this, you know, again, this is an example of it to me. So the idea is wonderful, you know. He comes in this boat in the Aegean Sea, right? And it's Henry <laughs> Fonda, right? It's supposed to be magnificent, right? And and mm. visually, it's it's flat, yeah.
0: Yeah, I was wondering as well why. Um, when I was thinking about why why this flopped at the box office, uh, I think you pick up on particularly with the with the casting. Uh, that's a clear uh, kind of indication. But I also thought maybe um, because it starts off with this with this such a classic noir setup, the same again at Sunset Boulevard voiceover two weeks ago, you know, we're going to unravel a mystery. Um, these it, it, these are things that, certainly in these days, are pastiched and parodied and seen as kind of quite comical. Was it the case, you know, this is 30 years on from, from sort of noir now, was it the case that in 78, this was if already seen as kind of passé, was the film trying to evoke a genre that was dead, you know, and people didn't take seriously? No, I mean... You know, the 1970s uh, hosted a
1: whole revival of noir. The Last Goodbye, that was Altman's, you know, fabulous kind of reworking of noir. There was also a remakes of Farewell, My Lovely, and so on. Then actually, I think the Coens came with, what, what was it, Blood Simple was what, 1980 or early 1980s? So actually, you know, if you bookend kind of you know, if you begin with something like Chinatown, the long goodbye, the remake of Farewell, My Lovely, and, and, you know, and then kind of, you know, Barton Fink, this whole period saw a real revival of deployment of film noir tropes, yeah, in contemporary films of the period. So, but the thing so is... So this that, is just a failed example of it rather than... Well, I, I think this film should have been a film noir, but certainly it's not filmed as one. No, no, yeah. so no I mean
0: you think you just you're, you're crying out for a Dutch angle <laughs> yes, somewhere. Uh, yes <laughs> yeah.
1: and, and lighting and you know and so on. But the thing is that, you know, what we're seeing as kind of Gothic, Billy Wilder knew was true, right? So he'd been great pals with Dietrich uh, throughout their life, really. And so he knew her well. a lot of the dialogue, It feels almost like out of Maria Riva's biography of her mother, right? So, you know, what we're seeing as gothic, he probably saw as realistic, yeah, kind of the struggles that these women make, the facelifts, the diets, the, you know, the wheeling and dealing, the kind of the sexual politics of, you know, getting parts and maintaining stardom and so on, you know, the, the willingness to erase a daughter or, you know, and so on. I mean, those are things that he kind of probably knew firsthand, and that he didn't see probably in a particularly phantasmatic way. I'm I'm speculating, but I have read, you know, kind of all of this. I think the reference to Noel Coward, for example, is not accidental. The reference to the mother's bisexuality is not accidental. I mean, that was the trick, you know. And one can play all these games about you know, kind of which elements of the story have a kind of a real-life equivalent. And actually, there are quite a lot of them, you know. I mean, Dietrich famously shut... Once Once she felt she was no longer uh, good-looking enough, she shut herself in her apartment in Paris and never saw anyone again. <laughs> you know, she came out once because she needed money desperately, you know, and that's about it when she did that uh, cameo... Um, in that Just a Gigolo uh, film with David Bowie, yeah? So these things have a resonance, yeah? Uh, I also think they speak to a different time. They speak to a time where people went to the films two, 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 two or three times a week. The films were huge. They were in black and white. You know, the they kind of faces invaded kind of or people lost themselves in people's faces and actors' faces, and you know those faces had a, an almost totemistic quality, you know that they lack now, and all of those things are referenced, I think, in 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 the film, maybe in ways that seem pastiche to us now, just because we don't recognize its power. Yeah. So I mean, mm-hmm. so we think, you know that people waiting in line at the funeral, uh, that's so excessive, you know, for a film star, right? Like, now you just go on Twitter and say, (laughs) R.I.P. Right? (laughs) Yeah. So the fact that these faces could have been so powerful kind of doesn't feel quite real to us. Mm. Though, you know, I think it would have felt real to, um, you know, to Wilder.
0: Well, I mean, it made me think of Princess Diana's funeral, actually. Ah. You know, because I I went to that... um, you know, or, or I should say I was taken to that. Because um, I was like 10 years old. Yes. Um, uh, nine years old, in fact. Um, so, you know, we did the whole queuing up and seeing the whole crowd. I mean, it was a bigger funeral than the one in Fedora. Mm. And it has a, a state funeral feeling to it uh-huh. in Fedora, you know. Yeah. And that's the idea. She's that important. Maybe maybe another criticism of the film would be that you actually don't get enough of a visceral sense of why she was such a big star. Yes. Um but maybe not because you basically see her that once when when she's uh, in her youth, and the William Holden character when he's younger, yes. it basically sort of it yawns and ignores her and ends up pulling her because of that. And she's insistent that she's that she's got an incredible body and so on and so forth. Um, and I guess you kind of you can see why people would be after her. But it's not a visceral sense. Most of the time you spend with her is you know in this old age thing where she's looking back on who she was. I,
1: th- I think you've hit on something that is an important lack in the film. Because, you know, you're constantly told that, you know, she played Madame Bovary and Lola Montez and, you know, like all these great historical figures, right? Which is, you know, some idiot's idea of great drama is to have played all these, you know, great historical figures. But actually, you're never once told what her persona was, you know, like mm. kind of... You know, we know what Dietrich signified while she continues to, you know, entrance and so on, right? It's like her attitude and, you know, her lack of sentimentality and her bisexuality and, you know, kind of her sleekness and her beauty and, you know, kind of what she represented to different kinds of people. You know, we know that. But actually, we never get told what fedora's persona was i mean we get told she was a great actress and a great star but why was she what did she mean to people what did she signify we don't know if
0: anything the one real concrete thing that you get is is that um she had all of these love letters from admirers who were you know the the most famous men in the world yeah you know like like uh uh I can't remember if it was Tchaikovsky or some, some composer, and Picasso, Winston Churchill, you know, all these people. So, like, basically, the thing that like her, her defining sort of feature in Stardom seems to be that loads of men wanted to sleep with her. Uh, um, maybe that's another way in which the film uh, <laughs> does not have the highest opinion of women because that seems to be all it kind of values in her as a star. No, no, I don't agree because actually,
1: you know... There's something kind of interesting about stardom. So, you know, some of the biggest stars of the 1890s were like the famous courtesans, right, who had their picture in postcards and so on, and who were chased and kept as mistresses by the aristocracy of the day. And they were pan-European celebrities, right? Stars in their own way. Mm. Yeah. Uh, uh, La Belle Otero and people like that. So, you know, this idea of being able to attract kind of the rich and the powerful, and she says, these are my medals, that made sense to me. It was certainly true of Dietrich, right, who kind of, you know, made, made sport of it, but actually I think even someone like Dietrich, you know, she's got this line where she says, you know, she tells her daughter, you know, uh, most children inherit their medals from their from their father, you will inherit yours from your mother, because, you know, she was involved in the war, right, and she won the Legion d'honneur, and she was at the front, and... You know she was very brave and correct. Yeah, so there is something there. Yeah, to reduce the medals to just who you slept with, to you know Dietrich's war medals, say, but actually there's also something that is conveying, you know, something about the desirability, the star power, the you know expectations and kind of discourses around being a particular type of glamorous sex symbol. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Shall we talk about Sunset Boulevard for a little bit? Okay. Because that's, that's the other film that I watched tonight. I'd not seen it before, and you didn't bother watching it. You're familiar with it, and you had to go to bed because you're... Well, out. I just
1: didn't have time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't um... <laughs> have minded watching it again. I love it, uh, but I have seen it many times, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so, you know, we've been making comparisons with it, or at least I have the whole way through, and that, and, and I think it's because there is a lot to... Uh, you, very straight up compare. Like, the, the you know, Fedora seems in so many ways to be directly referencing Sunset Boulevard, down to, you know, the, the line that Fedora has at the end where she says, it's all about the final close-up, hmm. you know. And Sunset Boulevard is so famous. The structural problem that I had with Sunset Boulevard that I mentioned was, again, with the kind of flashback structure. You start off with the, again, it's a famous image and, and one that I was familiar with of uh, William Holden face down in the pool, and then it's how we're going to find out how he got there. Um, and, you know, I thought, that I went with it, and I was interested in seeing how things developed, but actually, once he got into the sort of second half of the film, I found that it started to become like a... It actually felt like a burden that the film had, because I thought, you know, this film is interesting and enjoyable, and I'm into it, and I don't need this thing about oh but you know we're going to find out soon how he got into the pool and how he died you know i didn't need that hanging over me i didn't need the film to be going oh, but this is coming up actually i thought if you tell the story chronologically it is good enough to stand up you know i didn't need i didn't need that so actually i started to lose interest because i thought i wish somehow i had more faith in itself i wish i just i really don't like that technique i must say i really don't like that well i mean there are stories behind it i don't
1: think that was wilder's first choice uh, mm. So I think that, you know, that beginning with the end and the corpse stalking, you know, is something that was an add-in. And, uh, my, you know, my memory is not clear on this. It might have been due to censorship. uh right. Yeah, kind of, you know, because the whole thing about Sunset Boulevard is so powerful. And again, you have to look at it historically, right? It's, it is basically about a gigolo, about a man selling himself, right? for mm. opportunity. I mean, yeah. So, and it's very sexual and it's very creepily sexual. It is about, you know, a man in his prime at his most attractive kind of, you know, convincing himself that it's okay to sleep
0: with this very old woman.
1: <laughs> yeah. Mm. Uh, out of financial necessity. It's like the whole thing is a Very
0: old and deluded as well. I yeah. mean, it's, it's like it's, she's not completely in charge of herself. Well, you but know, And you... he buys into this
1: you find that out gradually and almost you find that out along kind of with him really. So, you know, the amounts of like self hatred that you have at the very beginning. Yeah. Uh, that William Holden's character evokes. Yeah. Is, um, hmm. is actually something that is missing from Fedora. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, you're you're you you really feel that. Yeah, he is a gigolo and he hates being a gigolo and actually he does have kind of moral standards and maybe he should have gone back home to Kansas or whatever, it's wherever he's from, right? But instead he finds himself kind of, you know, selling himself sexually. I can't think of another film in the classic era, you know, I mean, you often have like gigolos for fun, yeah, like an old countess with a young man or whatever. You know, but kind of from from the gigolo's point of view and that evocation of like s- self disgust or disgust at oneself you know it's mm. very powerful
0: i think what you say about um us discovering that she's sort of unstable along with him i don't think that's entirely true I, I it seems this is coming to from a position of knowing in broad strokes how the story goes and what happens before i've seen it so admittedly there's that but you know from the second you meet her really and she starts to engage with uh, William Holden. It's in Gloria Swanson's performance, you know, the, the wild faces that she pulls, and the thing about you know having to be in every scene of the film, and it's not, it's you know, I I'm big, the pictures got small, and you know, like it's right there from the beginning, a, a kind of self obsession, and that's... there's something about this woman that does not match up with the world around her.
1: Okay, but you know, but yeah, I think you get that gradually. I mean, my feeling at all those things, oh well, you know, that's just how a silent film star. You know, because actually, you know, if somebody like Fedora in the sound era was famous, somebody like Gloria Swanson was world famous, right? Like, you know, without yeah, the level of fame. I think, I think when Gloria Swanson married the Marquis de la Falaise, uh, you know, and she went on a train, there were like thousands and thousands of people just waving to her at the train all along America. Right. It's kind of like a, you know, a level of fame and kind of, you know, image worship or something that we just don't really have anymore. I mean, fame, yes, I suppose everybody knows who a Kardashian is, you know, but the idea of, you know, having this affective connection with them that you would literally go and spend the whole day just so you can wave at them on a train. That is kind of like I mean, we saw that with Princess Diana in this country. But it wasn't worldwide, and you know, there's nothing like that in nationwide. You know, somebody, a silent film actress like Gloria Swanson enjoyed that. So this idea that you know they're full of themselves or they have a particular world view, to me, that's kind of uh, understandable. It's not yet. No, oh, no, no. I don't mean <laughs> it
0: in terms of. I don't. Th- I, I'm not suggesting that she's full of herself. That wouldn't be the way I'd put it. But there is there is a disconnect between the way that she. I mean, the thing is, the the life that you describe of being worshipped, you know, um, will not it will not make a person more sane. No, no, I get. And it. Um, the way that Norma Desmond starts off in this film is in this you know old house. I mean, it's even introduced to us in voiceover uh, as. Um, Uh, uh, Miss Havisham, Ah. you know, like a Miss Havisham house, Mm. he says, you know, and there's just what there's just her in there and this one butler. It's like Dietrich in in
1: her late life. That is like Dietrich in her in her later life with her butler in her Paris apartment that was paid for by the French government, right? Because Yeah. yeah,
0: of her importance you know shut in like
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so you know there is there is, is an dis- obvious disconnect kind of right from the start that whoever this woman may have been and may believe that she still is in the wider world is not the case mm. you know not the case anymore and so i think that does come across to me as fairly apparent really early on mm. um not to say like kind of a, a mental instability that's Going to result in obsession and killing someone. You know that is what develops, but there's a disconnect there. I think immediately, um, I had a problem with uh, actually the end of the film, uh, specifically the shooting. Uh-huh. The moment the shooting happened, I didn't like it because it didn't feel justified. Right, she's she's losing her mind and she's crazy and she needs him and she doesn't want him to go, and she has a gun. But it's a deliberate shooting, and that did not play to me. Because I thought, actually, what happens here, realistically, is she doesn't want him to go, and he goes, and she breaks down crying. That's, to me, what actually felt more realistic. And what would have then felt more justified in terms of shooting would be if either Max, the butler slash first husband, shot him as a way to protect her, protect her delusion, or... If she shot him in error, she you know whatever it was, the gun went off by accident. She tripped, she didn't know what she was doing. It was an accident that she shot him, which would have made, then continue to make sense because you ultimately do need her going down the stairs, and you know you need the irony of the TV cameras that have shown up because she's a murderer,
1: mm.
0: her mistaking them or believing that they're film cameras, and you know so instead of stepping into the limelight, she's stepping into jail at the end. You need that irony thing, so it has to be her that kills him. But I didn't buy the actual shooting. Well. I
1: did. And I think kind of, you know, this, this this way that you're explaining kind of the logical, reasonable expectations is to me the wrong way of going about it because, you know, there's a reason why the film, you know, has been turned into a musical and a, a really operatic kind of musical, yeah, of kind of delusions and delirium and love and, you know, and actually yeah. it's, it's because that's the vein that the film is kind of communicating with so that kind of like logic obviously you know there has to be a degree of it to make sense but then you know in norman desmond's minds it goes into something else that is understandable
0: i do understand what you mean it it, for me that would have just needed to be conveyed slightly differently slightly more in a slightly more justified way like uh, because i I, I went back and watched that a few times because i wanted to really get the measure of it and there's no close-up On her right, it's he's staggering out to the car, and it's a wide shot from kind of quite high up, and Mm. he's sort of closer to the front of the frame. She's further in the background by the house, and she shoots him. And there's no moment where you, I wanted to see the 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 the, the anger and the fear and the craziness and the loss of control in her eyes. That's what would have sold that to me. It's maybe one missing shot would have done it, you know. I just didn't buy it in that moment, but I did buy it then as it developed into her falling into complete delusion. You know, I loved that.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I can't comment on that because I have seen the film many times. I never get tired of watching it. Mm. I think it is an absolute masterpiece of the cinema, but actually those relays of shots that you're just describing, I simply can't yeah. remember. Yeah, uh, no, friends. So, So what about Sunset Boulevard? kind of helps you appreciate or understand Fedora better.
0: There's clearly a continuity in the two films of a critique of Hollywood and stardom, as I say, to some extent. And I think they are slightly different. Um, Fedora is about beauty and about the, the fear of loss of identity in a slightly different way to Sunset Boulevard. But Sunset Boulevard is about loss of identity with with Swanson's character, but it's about the fear of a loss of who she is in other people's eyes. Well, you see, to me,
1: if Martha Keller had been better, you'd be able to make similarities between the William Holden character in Sunset Boulevard and the daughter. Yes, because actually they're both erased, they're both bought... One does it for affection, you know, out of a need of affection for the mother. You know, the other one does it out of a way of surviving and, you know, having a career. You know, Um, the the Gloria Swanson, the Norma Desmond character and the real Fedora slash Countess character also kind of, you know, have a lot in common, really. I mean, basically they suck up everybody else, including the first husband and so on. Now, what Sunset Boulevard has that Fedora doesn't is that there's something endearing and lovable about crazy Norma Desmond. There, there's a reason why the first husband is there serving her mm. and helping her and making sense of the world. Yeah, you never understand why, you know, the Countess's coterie is there, yeah? So the, you, un, you, you later understand why the Count, played by Hans Jarret, is there. And obviously the companion is meant to be also a kind of lover, I suppose. So that is explained. Uh, Why the doctor follows them around. Yeah. And becomes part of the coterie when he's a famous doctor who's got this huge clinic. I mean, that doesn't make sense to me. Um, I think,
0: doesn't he have dialogue about having been discredited, uh, which is why I think in that scene where he's talking to William Holden early on uh, in the hotel. Well, that, that
1: would, that would explain it actually. Um, So you understand why Fedora basically kills her daughter. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But actually, that's not communicated dramatically, powerfully enough. Yeah, so basically, Mm. you're told why she... I mean, I think the thing is that the central character in the film needed to have been the Countess, Fedora, the old lady, in the same way that Gloria Swanson was at the center of Sunset Boulevard, right? So actually, maybe that's interesting. Maybe that's where you, you're thinking about the structure. Makes, uh, it might be insightful because, you know... Kind of, so you, well, I'm just Less thinking generous. aloud. Well. <laughs> yeah, I know. I rejected it the first time, so now I'm just thinking. Uh, you know, because you get the producer of William Holden's... yeah. Uh, a view then chase and so on in the first part, right? And you know mar the Marth Keller younger Fedora daughter uh breaches or 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 crosses uh both uh sections. but actually the mother, the real fedora remains kind of vague on the sidelines, in the shadows. Right until the end, and at the uh, funeral, yeah, and even then you have information from other sources, right? And actually, you needed to to understand better emotionally, yeah, what drives a woman to do that to her daughter, right? Because yes, she wants to maintain her fame, yes, you know, she wants to maintain the image and so on, but actually, you don't get enough of her. Point of view on her relationship with her daughter
0: her relationship with her daughter is a very complicated one because you have this thing of her daughter rejecting her when she's very young because she doesn't spend enough time with her her stardom's more important and then she comes back and you know she's happy to have her back in her life but then emotional connection i guess you see in some of those flashbacks and then it sort of starts to disappear and then by the time you get to the funeral no one is is upset that the daughter's dead And that's very peculiar because it's not to say they should be upset. They could be incredibly cold, harsh people. But then that feels not communicated, if that's the case. I mean,
1: she's robbing her daughter even of her funeral. Yeah, it becomes the funeral of Fedora. You know, teams of plastic surgeons have been working around the clock for two days to restore her look to that of Fedora. Right. And there should have been something, I think, about her daughter. It's her daughter who's Mm. dead. Does she feel nothing? right i mean you you suspect that you know she has to feel something even if she then has to rationalize it yeah so yeah. so that to me is also like a little bit of a like.
0: a reason for the film's failure yeah yeah uh, before we completely finished i I do want to say like two positive things about sunset boulevard because i've basically picked up on two things that i didn't like very much Uh um and you know and like i say there although i did just sit there picking up on flaws really because i thought oh isn't this supposed to be the greatest blah 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 and that's what happens um you know i will return to this film and i will watch it again and i'm sure i'll enjoy it more and i think it's really funny there's loads and loads of good dialogue and well-delivered dialogue. As there is in Fedora, I think Fedora is very funny as well, but Sunset Boulevard is more funny. Yes. Um, there, was, there was one bit in particular which I don't even know if I meant to find it funny, but I laughed, I howled with laughter, which is when William Holden meets uh, Norma Desmond for the first time and, he, and she's talking about wanting to do Salome. I, I've just, I got the script up here to remember the dialogue. He says, um, and you'll play Salome? Who else? <laughs> Only asking. I didn't know you were planning a comeback. And she says, "I hate that word. It is a return, a return to the millions of people who have never forgiven me for deserting the screen." Yeah. And she holds this kind of mad face. And off-screen, he says, "Fair enough." And that's <laughs> such a non kind of answer to what she's just said in this super dramatic way. I really really laughed at that. I loved it. Um so I I think it was really funny and, you know, whether that is a p- p- deliberate joke or not, there are loads. And I also think that it is incredibly visually expressive and you know, maybe again, that's just taken for granted, but certainly towards the end when she makes that phone call to the, the girl, whatever her name was. And, you know, he walks in the back through the door and it's his silhouette and he approaches. And there's some beautiful, expressive, dark cinematography going on there. that I loved. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, you know, it's hardly, it's hardly going out my way to say, Oh, by the way, this film was actually good, but it is good, you know, and I will watch it again. Um, and actually, you
1: know, to return to Fedora, I think Fedora is also wonderful. I mean, I think, you know, throughout this whole podcast, you know, I've, we've been talking about, you know, why it's a failure. And we haven't maybe been talking enough about why it's a perfect failure. You know, I <clears> think I think it's a really complex film. It's really interesting. It's got all of these films that are intricately worked through. It is also very funny, I think, you know. Um, and it's kind of, uh, you know one of the great directors kind of point of view on Hollywood and celebrity that is always kind of worth uh, listening to and, and seeing. Um, I'm very glad that the film, you know, is being in a way revived. I really think it deserves to be revived. Yeah. Uh, so, and I, I would urge people to see it. So
0: thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping dropping at the movies and we are on. Apple podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and YouTube. On social media we're on Facebook and Twitter and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com Thank you very much for listening. Bye bye.